0: Traveling, volunteering, spending time with family. What's your retirement look like? With income planning from Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can help you grow and protect your wealth. They'll look at your full financial picture and help you create a flexible strategy that considers things like market conditions and healthcare expenses. So you can stop worrying about the future and enjoy whatever comes next. Visit fidelity.com slash income planning. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC.
2: Hey, and welcome to What Future? I'm Josh Witsipolsky. Whoa,
3: whoa, 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 whoa. What? Josh, what's going on with your audio?
2: It's funny you should ask that. Um, funny and also rude, actually. <laughs> um, but that's okay. I'm going to let that slide. <laughs> I am recording this portion of the podcast from a hotel room just outside of San Francisco. Mm. Uh, which sounds like, I mean, when you say something like just outside of a major city, it sounds like you're doing like a drug deal, Right. I mean, I'm not doing a drug deal.
3: Uh, Maybe explain that one.
2: I don't know. Just just outside of like, why aren't I in San Francisco, right? Mm,
3: mm-hmm. You know,
2: I guess I'm more likely to do a drug deal in San Francisco, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not trying to comment on the crime in San Francisco or anything, <laughs> okay? If, no, I'm not Gavin Newsom. I don't know what's going on there. But anyhow, I'm in a hotel. I'm traveling during what is a very unusual week, I think, in the world. But I mean, is every isn't every week unusual now? Yeah. Am I nostalgic for a time that never existed? Do I imagine an era where the weeks would go by and you wouldn't know anything about what the president was doing or what was happening in politics or if there were wars in the world or like what the billionaires were doing with, you know, their money or what kind of horrible crimes were being committed or atrocities in other countries? Like am I nostalgic First off, is it nostalgia? I don't even know. Do I perceive of this thing having existed that never really existed?
3: I mean, all of these things were always happening, but you didn't always have to know about right. them. And right. now it feels like there's a moral requirement to know.
2: Right. I do think it's a little bit the lack of information that we used to have. But anyhow, so I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. And I when you're traveling and I'm alone, I think you have a lot of time to ponder. By the way, this is all my explanation of why my audio sounds bad. I just want to remind the listener out there that we would be talking about something that's way more interesting, I think, if Lyra hadn't called me out um, rudely, uh, insensitively called out my audio look, changes.
3: Look, it's just who I am. I'm a really rude person.
2: No, I get, I get it. I understand. You're just not nice. It's fine. Uh, but, you know, so so I've had a lot of time to think and I've been thinking about um, the way that we travel now, which feels like, you know, sometimes it's not just physical travel, but it's this kind of like, you know, I don't know, you know, at the, at the, at the risk of beating a, uh, first off, beating a dead horse is kind of a rude expression. I do once in a while catch myself when I say, because, you know, I, I say it's like Zelda, my daughter, and, and it's like, yeah, that does sound really rude and mean. Anyhow, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, obviously Twitter is, is on my mind a lot because once the Twitter stuff really started getting bad, and I do think a lot of people are kind of backing away from Twitter. It feels, I mean, there are a lot of people who are, you know, rage quitting it, but also just kind of going like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. Now, I, I, don't, I don't like to rage quit things, so I'm going to kind of hang on and just see where it goes. You know, I just want to kind of sit on the sidelines and watch it burn like the little girl in that meme picture meme picture that's the most old i've ever sounded just then we can put a put a mark down write it down on the calendar mid-november josh topolsky sounds as old as he's ever sounded when he says the words meme picture uh anyhow over the last few weeks i've been i've been experimenting with this social network called mastodon which is not new it's it's been around for several years have you heard of mastodon no Conceptually, the way it functions and looks is is you know you if you looked at it you'd say okay that's kind of like Twitter, but it is um, you can have your own Twitter with its own sort of rules and regulations, and that your personal like Lyra's Lyra's Mastodon instance can be part of it's part of this thing called the, the Fediverse, or like the federated universe of Mastodon instances or Mastodon servers or whatever. This is already sounding completely insane, right? Like totally makes no sense. No normal person wants this. No normal person needs this. No normal It
3: sounds like a next level internet. Like the internet I'm not ready for.
2: Well, it's it's actually interesting because it is and I wrote a little bit about this on this Mastodon thing about how you know there's this whole movement this web 3.0 movement which is concerned with uh, decentralizing the internet, meaning the way the internet works now is essentially this top-down creation, right? We've turned it into this place where every part of the internet you go to or every part of the internet you use is essentially owned and operated by some massive corporation that sets its own sort of rules and regulations and has its own policies and can kind of do whatever it wants with the users, right? So Google and Facebook and Twitter and you know Amazon and whoever, right? But what's interesting is This Mastodon network operates very much like an expression of this idea that maybe the internet shouldn't be all of these super huge shared single size spaces, but it should be, you can connect spaces together. And by the way, this is kind of how the internet used to be. Things could be connected together, but they were not necessarily beholden to a single way of doing things. And so what Mastodon is, interestingly, is like maybe a better expression than any crypto thing I've ever seen or any at NFT or any of this stuff that people talk about and pitch on 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 social networks as the future, where it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can kind of see how this works because, one, it gives the person who runs the this whatever instance of Mastodon, gives them control. But it also gives the individual a lot of control. And in fact, Mastodon is built in many ways by the lgbtq plus community by trans activists by people who have really been you know beat up on sort of mainstream social networks people who are not the mainstream sort of you know american middle american user or whatever and, and so they've built mastodon with this idea of consent mm-hmm. giving you control and consent over what you can see over what can be shared over you know how information is sort of presented and and, and and it takes into account all sorts of things that a lot of like older social networks have been very slow in taking into account, like having content warnings or, you know, keeping photos blurred until a user actually wants to see them, or even having, you know, written descriptions for photos for people who are, uh, have, you know, site issues or whatever. And so I think it's just an interesting, and it is an interesting model that where where Twitter is like, Twitter basically created tools that would allow people to harass other people on mass and they did nothing to prevent it. Like Twitter is basically custom designed to allow for these like sort of insane mobbing techniques where you can retweet somebody and show it to a bunch of people who have nothing to do with it. And all of those people kind of pile on. Whereas something like Mastodon is built like to do kind of the opposite. It is not meant to like have things go viral necessarily or expose this sort of one m- message or moment to like as many people as possible and what you can do with that with that individual moment is much more about like what you consent to versus sort of what the system pushes you into. And so I'm not saying that Mastodon is the future of social media. Maybe, you know, TikTok is the future. I, although, you know, I just looked at TikTok recently and I have to say, what I saw there was very worrying for humanity, in my opinion. That's just one old guy's opinion. One, one guy who said meme page talking here. Or meme picture, whatever it is I said. But, you know, I think it's interesting that th- there's some new ideas still to explore. And it kind of gives me a little, again, I, I, feel, I feel like all the time I'm like, oh, I'm su- surprised to discover that maybe I don't feel as hopeless as I thought I did about some of the things that are happening. But I do think Mastodon is an interesting sort of experiment in what if we thought differently about how we should arrange people and how we should arrange social networks. And and frankly, like one of the reasons why I continue to to remain extremely interested in technology, even when it's kind of abusing me, is that you know it feels like there still is something there that we haven't seen yet, that we haven't experienced yet, that we hadn't even thought of yet. You know, and, and if you if you'd have told me that I would even be entertaining a new sort of framework for a social network, I don't know, a year ago I'd be like, no, I don't think that'll ever happen again. And so. You know, I am kind of impressed with, with technology's ability to, to surprise. I mean, I, I think the conversation we had last week with the CEO of MidJourney is a great example of another technology that has surprised me and impressed me and excited me about the future. And anyhow, so all of this, this has all been on my mind. And, and as I've been traveling and alone with my thoughts, just sitting in a dark room, one lone tear streaming down my cheek, just thinking... And being with my brain, um, you know, it reminded me of a, of a conversation we had recently, uh, which I I think you know is very relevant, and I've been thinking a lot about uh, with the director and producer Vincenzo Natale, who's you know currently helming the Peripheral, which is a show about virtual reality and the future of technology and like really wild stuff. It's based on a book written by William Gibson. And as I've been alone with all of these thoughts about shifting from place to place and what technology can actually do for us and also what is frightening about it i felt like it's a good time to to have that conversation so here is my conversation with vincenzo natale and obviously the audio is going to sound way better than this does Vincenzo, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I have a question for you, which is, what did you have for breakfast today?
4: <laughs> well, I'm a healthy breakfast person. Okay. I would like to say yes. I had uh, bran and fruit. That sounds healthy. Yeah, it is. And then the rest of the day, it all goes to hell.
2: Yeah, and and what about sleep? Do you get a lot of sleep? Are you a good sleeper? I am. Yeah. <laughs> really. I like to do a health check with, with anybody who comes on the show. Just want to get a sense of like how they're feeling, like what their wellness levels are, that sort of thing.
4: Well, there's a million other reasons I could drop dead at any second Oh, so. okay. But sleep and breakfast are, like, are taken care of. We're, we're in a good place. You're
2: like, I had a great, very healthy breakfast, then I just snorted a ton of cocaine. So anything exactly. can happen. It's
4: all about balance.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, everything in moderation. <laughs> you're a director, a producer, a writer. You wear many hats. But you do seem to be interested in horror to some extent, or or at least, uh, well, actually, would you call it horror? Would you call some of the things you do horror?
4: Oh, yes. I have no problem with that label. (laughs) Okay, good. You're not like,
2: no. But what is it about the genre? Like, how did you come to that genre? And what is it that excites you about it? And how do you stay excited about it? I mean, there's like three different questions, but we'll start with
4: how you got there. Well, people have been asking me that a lot recently. It's hard for me to answer that because my earliest memories include horror. I've always been drawn to it, and um, in
2: life or, or film,
4: uh, well, both, I guess.
2: Not, not horrific events in your life. <laughs>
4: no, although I'm convinced that you know an attraction to horror is sort of an awareness or a reaction to the horror that exists in our lives. So that hmm. you know it's a kind of sensitivity. Joe Hill very wisely said that you know people who create horror content are not sadistic. They're Empathetic, and and I feel like if you have a lot of empathy for other people and you're sensitive to the world around you, probably you have a taste for horror because the world can be pretty horrifying. Yeah. So, so maybe that's I, I really don't know. It sort of gets into self psychoanalysis, I'm sure. I'd no, do. I
2: like I like that's how hopefully you have a breakthrough <laughs> on this show. That's what I would like to have happen. So I'm just you
4: know at the end of the day, I'm just not that interesting. Like, I don't think there's anything particularly distinctive about me.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And, and that's part of the reason I'm drawn to fantasy. In anything that I make, I would never want to document my life because that would just put people to sleep instantly. <laughs> my external life is not very interesting. Right. Maybe the internal one is a little more interesting. But I, you know, horror, to me, it's all kind of one thing. Horror, fantasy, and science fiction are a way of approaching the real world in an indirect way. And, and you know, it's partially an escape, but I think it's more about, like, digging under the surface of things. And so on some level, probably unconscious level, that is part of the reason that I am drawn to it. Um, part of it is, you know, I just grew up in a kind of middle class environment and, you know, in a very safe city, Toronto, you know, an apartment complex, very clean, very, you know, I think there was just maybe a, a desire to escape from that. And, um, but horror specifically, I I think it's, it's deeper than that. I think I actually believe that there might be genetic code for, uh, like a horror gene that is responsible for what draws people to horror. Cause I see it in my kid who connects with this stuff and I have not encouraged it whatsoever. I (laughs) I almost feel like it's hereditary.
2: You don't think, you don't think there's just like a kind of, within your world, there's, I mean, presumably you've got a lot of projects going on that are, I mean, you're around this stuff all the time. You don't think it's just like by osmosis from just the conversations or the things you're working on? You think it's just inherent?
4: He was so young when he was drawn to it. It would have, he couldn't possibly have been affected by anything that I did because he certainly wouldn't have seen that. So no, it's some, I I actually think there's like a, a protein sequence that That makes you, uh, I don't know, this is just silly conjecture on my part, but I I think we have, you know, our taste certainly has to be determined by our genetic makeup. So why not horror?
2: I mean, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of the things you've done, or at least certainly some of the things you've done are interested in like how the body works and how the mind works. And it's funny that your explanation for why someone would like horror, perhaps why you like it, is something that's like just genetically built in. I mean, I think there's something to it. By the way, I'm sure there's a study out there that either proves or disproves this concept, but <laughs> I do I do think it is an extreme thing. Like I know people, and I'm sure you know these, these people who don't like to be scared when they watch a movie, don't like to experience like what a horror movie does or even what a thriller does. And it's a very strong, it feels like a very binary sort of reaction. It's either like you really like it and you enjoy it and there's just something about it you can do over and over again, or you really dislike it. And I found that like, There's not a lot of people who are like, I like a little bit of horror, but not too much. So maybe there's something to it. You know, maybe we need to do some study. Maybe we need to do a study.
4: Um, (laughs) I almost don't want to know. That's the thing. Like, I think (laughs) I would rather not dig too deep in a way. Here's a great
2: plot for a film. It's a, a group of scientists are studying whether or not we're genetically predisposed to be scared and like it. I don't know. And then you take it from there. You've got it. That's a a free idea. So, okay. So, but was there a movie or something for you when you were a kid? You was like, this is the thing. Was there a artistic entry point for you or like a piece of work that you were like, this is the thing that I want to do?
4: Well, my first vivid memory of seeing a movie, and it probably wasn't the first film I saw, but the one that kind of really affected me, and this is where I'm dating myself, is I saw The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Oh, yeah. Which is a Ray Harryhausen film in the theater. It's one of his best films, I think, and it has these magnificent creatures in it. It's got a centaur that's also a cyclops, and it's got a um, multi armed Cali uh, statue that comes to life. And that I, that really affected me. I think I was just really transported by that. That's not a horror film, although there are horror aspects to it, and it's really beautiful, you know. And and of course, it's all handmade and. it's one of his later films, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. And I guess Jason and the Argonauts are kind of the gold standard for Ray Harryhausen. But, but this one is the one that I really connected to It has Tom Baker in it, who became Dr. Who. Um, Oh Yeah. Yeah. Tom Baker. uh, Anyway, it's a really lovely fantasy film, but there was just something about those creatures that really affected me. And I I definitely went through my Ray Harryhausen period later on, when I started to get interested in making films, I I kind of wanted to be Ray Harryhausen. So,
2: I guess the question I have there is, was it the creatures themselves, like the concept of the creatures, or was it the the technical piece of it, like that these were things were created for film and they were done in a very specific sort of artistic way?
4: Uh, oh, no, I was so young. I was probably four years old. Uh, no, no, no. It was, it was purely seeing creatures coming to life it was just right. thrilling to me. And uh, at a young age, I was very interested in Greek mythology. And I think mythological concepts have always been fascinating to me and have stayed with me. I, in some respect, I feel like all my films are, have that mythological basis. Mm. It, it just touches a nerve. You know, these things are so deep in us. I really I kind of believe in the collective unconsciousness. I believe that in there's a commonality between all of us globally, whereby certain images or certain ideas resonate. And then a horror genre in particular does that because it's dealing with things that are existential. Right. Comedy doesn't necessarily travel well between cultures, but horror does. It doesn't really know any kind of cultural boundaries. And and I think it because it's tapping into that, you know, obviously that very very basic instinct that we all have for survival.
2: Right. It taps into literally into our fight or flight responses, right? I mean, when you are scared of a like a jump scare or something that's really horrific in a movie, you're having some version of it you'd be having if that thing was happening to you in in real
0: life. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half ton Tundra workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma. Delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style, the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. AI
6: might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control?
2: Like, if you see, like, a horrific creature coming towards you, no matter where you are, no matter what you've seen previously or how you've, you know, what culture you've been raised in, you have an instinctive sort of, you know, reaction. I wonder, I mean, does horror work in some way because it's such a foundational sort of response from people, do you think? Is that why it's such a resilient
4: genre? Yes, and I think that it uses the tools of cinema... More than other genres, which is also why it's exciting to make horror because as a director, you prove your mettle through your ability to create an atmosphere and seduce people into a space. And that requires command over camera and music and editing more than I think any other genre. And if you look into the history of cinema, horror has been with us since the beginning, you know, the earliest. And probably some of those memorable silent films like Nosferatu yeah. are horror films. And there's just something inherently comfortable about that genre and cinema, because cinema is an immersive experience. And it's it's an experience that happens in, in real time for the audience. And I think horror also benefits from those tenets. The more you feel like and the more you can be transported into that screen the more successful it tends to be
2: yeah it is kind of a dominating art form and people say it's like hard to look away but it is it is in some ways dominates like the senses in a way that a lot of other film just simply can't or doesn't i mean we say film but you know this is like across a lot of different media at this point i want to talk about cube i don't know if it's your first film that you directed is that the first thing you directed or would i mean i assume you had done stuff like student stuff or something before that
4: oh i've been making you know short film since I was 11. But Cube was my first feature film.
2: Now, I remember Cube, it came out in, what, 97? Is that correct?
4: Yeah, 97, 98, depending on where you live.
2: My recollection is I encountered Cube, like, it on Blockbuster. I feel like Cube is maybe one of the first films that, and I don't know if this will sound insulting or not, hopefully not, but it was one of the first movies I remember seeing in Blockbuster and going, Like, I don't know if this was ever in a theater anywhere near where I lived. I'm from Pittsburgh, so it's very possible maybe Cube was in major cities that did not hit Pittsburgh, PA. But I remember it being a fairly important movie in the sense that everybody was talking about it. And it was one of those things that seemed to appear out of nowhere and captured some, I don't know, zeitgeist, some moment of anxiety and paranoia that was happening at, at that time. But could you just, if you had to sum up for somebody who has no idea what Cube is, how would you describe it?
4: Uh, Well, Cube is the story of six strangers who wake up in a maze of identical cubic rooms um, with no food or water. All they have is their minds, their bodies, and the clothes on their back, and they have to find a way out before they die of thirst or starvation. But the extra wrinkle in all of this is that some rooms have booby traps in them, deadly booby traps. Right. And ultimately, what they come to realize is that they are, in fact, inside a mathematical puzzle and that the solution to survival or at least part of it is decoding that solution but to do that they have to work together right i wrote it with my lifelong friend andre Bajelik. we were roommates at the time and i think the writing process for us was almost like archaeology it kind of felt like we had stumbled on something i knew almost right away that this was a great idea and and like a lot of great ideas i feel like i almost can't take responsibility for it. I think it's just something I came across. And gradually, as we started to write this thing, it was like, you know, a, an ancient building that was beneath the sand, and we were kind of slowly unearthing. And really, what we were doing is rediscovering what Cartesian space is. Ding! Mathematical dunces. Mm. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> wait, math is pretty cool. Math became very cool. Math could be used to kill. To kill yeah. and to survive. And But I think I think what at the core of it, what makes cube resonate is just that basic idea that we are dropped into this world in our actual lives with no plan and we have to find a way and we need to do it with other people we have to negotiate our path together and survival is dependent on being able to do it together imagine the idea <laughs> trying to survive <laughs> together and then at this moment i don't feel overly optimistic about our ability to work together and therefore to survive it's uh, a
2: <laughs> Tell me it's, about it. <laughs> it
4: anyway, yeah. I think that's sort of a timeless theme. And so, you know, it resonated then, it resonates now. I think maybe at that time it seemed extra special because there just weren't any, to be honest, there were no other movies like that. Like, I really feel yeah. like, again, that we just kind of found this uh, amazing thing. And, and it was also, I remember, you know, the process of trying to get it made was challenging because people just kept saying, well, it's a short film. <laughs> Right, and you can't make a whole movie in one room. Right, and and since Cube, and not not because of Cube, but you know, in the years that have passed for a variety of reasons, there is a whole genre. There's multiple subgenres that take place in single space settings.
2: Right. No, I mean it's it's a whole industry now that Cube has spawned. From a budgetary perspective, I would imagine like you're like it's going to be in a box basically. You're going to be in a, like a just an empty room. That feels like a win on the on the budget side of things, but. It's sort of also kind of waiting for Godot, sort of, or no exit. Yeah. I would imagine some of these things would have influenced the the creation of it. Like where it's like a bunch of people in a place where they don't fully understand, the viewer doesn't fully understand, and everybody's trying to make sense of it. And along the way we learn, you know, terrible and shocking things about all of the players. It's a technology movie in some way, right? Like the the place that people are grappling with, like you said, is sort of this math problem. There is a an outside force that is very technical in nature that needs to be grappled with. How much is technology for you like an important piece of the puzzle of no pun intended with cube, but the, you know, a piece of the puzzle when you're putting together, when you're thinking about some of these ideas for your, for your films and for the stuff that you're working on your TV stuff.
4: Well, I think that we're children of technology, you know, especially, and I, I think I predate you, but you know, my generation and beyond, we were enmeshed with our technology to the point where we can't really distinguish between the two and and cube i remember very consciously early on in creating cube i was thinking this is dante's inferno but it's the contemporary version of that you know these people were not in in a world of brimstone and treacle and um we're not underground uh we're in a very sterile man-made technological space so these people have are in the belly of a technological beast. And and I think more than ever, we probably all feel that way right now. You know, I'm communicating to you uh, with my iPad. You're in a cube. We're in little boxes.
2: <laughs> I would love to know how to escape this particular Zoom cube or whatever that modern
4: reality has placed us in. Sorry, Josh, not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's <laughs> We're stuck here. And I think that's it. You know, you, you wonder, well are we at service to the technology because it doesn't feel like the technology is at service to us right it feels like it is its own organism that its intentions whatever mysterious intentions they have are superseding those of its creators to some degree and i mean i guess it goes back to mary shelley right and the frankenstein but there is unquestionably this like increasingly intimate relationship that humans have with their technology to the point where i really do feel like as we all do, I'm sure we're kind of merging with it. And it's, you know, it's both empowering and incredible. Like this this little device that we're working on, I have no other computer that I use. I only use it to write and I can draw on it. You, you only use an iPad. I now only use an iPad. It's solid state. I can't break it easily. Wow. It's very lightweight.
2: Can I ask a dumb question? Yeah. I have a dumb question. Do you use the 12.9-inch the iPad or the smaller 11-inch iPad?
4: I use the iPad Pro. So I draw on it. I just the bit is it
2: but is it the, it's the biggest one though because yes. i just got one i'm just curious to know what the what a professional like yourself uh, is using you've got the biggest one is that like, right
4: yes bigger is better in my opinion i, I okay. draw with it the, and,
2: do you, you and you don't find it to be unwieldy just I mean, this is a total no, aside no. has nothing to do with what we're talking about but you you think the size is fine you like that
4: well as i say i draw on it right. like for me i'd like it i'd like a bigger one if they made them because i'm using a pen on it <laughs> a bigger ipad well, oh, I could like,
2: I'm trying to imagine a larger iPad that would just be like a desk that you carry around.
4: <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> just be. bring it on, I say. <laughs> okay. Interesting. No, I love it because it's very, but it's very lightweight. It's much lighter than a, um, you know, desk, well, certainly than a desktop or, you know, even a, a notebook. And um, yeah, I, I, sorry, I completely
2: got you off what you were saying, but I was just so curious because you mentioned before and I was going to ask you that you were on an iPad. I was going to ask you, but you were, you were talking about this, the fact that this is the only device you use for for everything.
4: Yeah, and it's so empowering. Like I did, I've finished a graphic novel that I did entirely on my iPad. I did a, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I did an album of music really? that I did on my iPad, which is even more extraordinary because I have no musical ability. And, <laughs> did you use GarageBand? And I used GarageBand and I found I could do all these things. I w- it was like, you know, being able to suddenly speak a language that I could never speak before. Right. Um, and I don't think my music is very good, by the way.
2: <laughs> I'd love to hear just what you made. Sure. Because I actually used to produce music for a living. And so one of the things I do love to do as a kind of recreational activity is sit on either with my iPad or on my laptop and, and work on random music, just because it's like, it's just relaxing to me. You know, it's like something I don't have to do for work anymore. And so it's become fun. But- you're basically saying you're not a musician, you know, by nature or whatever, but you've created what you would, what you just described as an album's worth of material. I would love to hear it. I mean, I
4: would just, yeah. if you could, could, oh wait, further to that, sorry, Josh, I don't mean to interrupt. No, 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 go ahead. But further to that, for a mere $40 or something a year, I was able to upload it onto every music streaming service there is. I could
2: go listen to it right now. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, go into Bandcamp or iTunes. Everything is it under
2: your name? Yep, just under my name. Okay, and I like how you're like, I'm not a musician. I, you know, I don't really just sort of like just messing around. But oh, also, it's on Spotify right now. If you want to listen to it, I mean, we have we're going to play some of it. I will. We're definitely going to play some of it because I'm dying to hear what it sounds like. How would you describe it before I even listen to it? What is the genre? Uh,
4: well, it probably falls into ambient. You know, like it's mm. it's not terribly melodic. <laughs> And it's just me goofing around. Like what I loved about doing it was I have no pretensions of being good. And, and ironically, I feel like that made me more creative. Whereas when I draw, I'm not a great artist, but I'm good enough that I try really hard to be good. Mm. But when I was making the music, it was just fun. I was just like a monkey with finger paint. And so I was continually surprised at like, oh, that's better than I thought it would be. Wow. And if you listen to the album, it's very silly and playful and goofy in a way. And you spent um, yeah.
2: your life thinking, boy, I wish I could make a, an album? <laughs> is that something that has been a, a far-off dreamer? Was it just one day you were like, oh, I have GarageBand on here. I might as well screw around with it.
4: Actually, what it is is I'm a nervous flyer. <laughs> Same. I used to be very uncomfortable in an airplane. And and I find there is nothing more engaging and distracting um, and, and, and makes time fly faster than when I'm doing music. Hmm. I, just, I just completely lose myself in it. So um, the whole album was... <laughs> recorded on airplanes
2: no that's i'm a i'm a terrible flyer i take xanax i mean that's my my solution is i literally medicate myself when i get on planes because i'm so convinced that i'm going to die for me it's definitely one of the few situations where i don't have any control over anything and so i'm sure as you know as like a producer and director you're probably used to having a lot of control over things so maybe there's a similarity there but um yeah, music making—that's interesting. I have made some music on planes, but I've never thought of it as a alternative to or in a, in addition to medicating myself so I don't lose my mind.
4: Maybe th- that would be a good combination. It
2: could. I could. Maybe I'll make an ambient <laughs> album. You know, who knows? Maybe, the, maybe that's how I break into the into the low key music genre. Oh, this is so interesting. The films are. There's a lot of technology, in there and then you're like, "Whoa, this is really fucked up. This is a bad." technology is very bad for us in some ways or this technology is being used in a really bad way but in your actual life you like it and you're finding new uses for it that you feel really good about
4: yeah that's just it it's it's not simple i think we have a complex relationship with our technology and i see a lot of what's negative about it and a lot of what's really scary about it you know there's this thing called Midjourney. i've been working with which oh. is this uh, artificial intelligence program you probably know that that paints and I just created a lookbook for my next movie entirely with Mid Journey, which, again, is incredibly cheap to use. It costs, I don't know, 30 or $40 a month. And I did, I don't know, 30 or 40 paintings to basically sort of create the look of my film. And I did, you know, I did some additional Photoshop type work on it, but it, it did about 80% of the work for me.
2: This is incre- and, incredible you're mentioning this. Sorry, go ahead. Finish your point. Then I'll, I have a couple of things.
4: Oh, no, no. But it's just, so it's it's thrilling. It's like, oh, my God. It's doing artwork that is beyond my level as an artist. And if I had to pay someone to do this, this would cost me thousands and thousands of dollars, and it would take a really long time. Yeah. I did this sort of part-time for a month, you know, like a few hours every day for a month, and it cost me 30 bucks. And the results are kind of amazing. And not only because the quality of the art is good, but also because depending on the prompts you use and, and the way it works is you just write in a few words and then it, it interprets that as an image. It's very creative. I would write something kind of not to dictate what I wanted, but to sort of discover like it was it was suggesting images for my movie. It wasn't just taking my dictation. Yeah. So in that regard I suddenly could see the end of my role in this industry
2: you mean you could see the end of like what you do like that coming to an
4: end yeah i see it i'm not saying it's going to happen based on what mid-journey does it's not a big extrapolation to imagine how we do the same thing with words and with screenplays especially screenplays because screenplays are very structure oriented you know not like writing a novel which is has a very kind of intimate personal point of view but let's face it in hollywood most screenplays are just a mashup of a whole bunch of other screenplays anyway. Right. So how much of a leap is it to imagine a machine that could take everything, every screenplay that's ever written, and then if you wrote a prompt like, say, pilot for buddy cop show where African-American female cop teams up with uh, alien and both fall in love with robot. (laughs) 60 pages, comedy, action, fast-paced. Wow, And then in five minutes, it's going to give you not one, but like four versions of your prompt. And then you'll take those four versions and you'll read them. and You'll go, oh, I like that. And that maybe I'll take this piece from there. And you'll either say, we'll do it again. Right. Or you, the writer, will then cobble, edit what it's produced, much in the way that I would edit these paintings that it would give me. And then maybe write over it or, you know, like add your layer to it. And it would permit you to write, like, 100 scripts a year.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
7: What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com, Toyota, let's go places.
0: Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account.
2: And does this scare you or does this excite you? As a person who's doing that stuff, you're like into it? It's both, right? I'm so happy and excited that you mentioned Mid Journey for a couple of reasons. First off, we interviewed the CEO of Mid Journey a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. Who is a fascinating dude. But also the art for this, I dropped a link in the chat. I don't know if you have access to the chat here.
4: Oh, there you go. I can see it now. Yeah, gorgeous.
2: So this art, this art I did with Mid Journey, you have a similar level of excitement that I had, which to me, I, and I've said this, I probably now said this on the podcast a few times, a few different episodes. Um, it, it was like the, the most amazing thing I've ever seen a machine do, I've ever seen a computer do, because it felt like I could see a dream, almost anything you can think of, it could depict. Like My brain can't visualize like quite that way. Maybe yours is better at I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you work in obviously an extremely visual medium. Mm-hmm. But to see a thing that is a string of words that I understand the philosophical, intellectual concept of that string of words, to see that string of words be turned into image, and not just image, but really fucking good, really interesting art, was like pretty mind-blowing to me. And it seems like you had a similar reaction, but there are a lot of people, especially people in your world, who are artists and creators and directors and writers, who are really, really freaked out about it because- Mm -hmm. I mean, I could have paid an artist to do this art, right? Totally. But now you won't. I, I didn't. You know, I paid $30 a month on mid-journey. And I think it's like an amazing piece of art. Like, I'm like, this is so beautiful. I've, it's hard to believe I had anything to do with it. So how far off do you think we are from like, you know, you being replaced as a screenwriter and possibly a director?
4: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say, but I do feel like if I was a chartered accountant, I'd be fucking terrified. Or you know, even a lawyer, like those right. jobs are going away. There's no way it was, it's to- interesting. You go,
2: you go to the opposite end of the spectrum because the people who are upset about AI stuff like this right now are largely artists, working artists. And I think that, you know, there's gonna be a clear drop-off. And and I've had people sort of anecdotally mm-hmm. mention to me that they've they've seen their
4: work dropping
2: off sure. already from people just, you know, doing this AI stuff.
4: The the only thing is, and I, I mean, could only speak about Now, and then my crazy conjecture of what the future might be. But right now, yes, the journey is amazing. And I don't know, there's Dali and there's other ones. It's great if you just want to like, if you have a a wide bandwidth of what you want. Yeah. If you want something specific, it's not very good. You need an artist to come in. And, you know, if you have a logo or a specific image you want, if you want some crazy album cover art, the journey is your tool for sure. Because it's crazy, it is crazy, like, or crazy is the wrong word. It has a kind of alien, which I love, like, uh, alien quality to the way it creates images. But it's very difficult to control, and it still has limitations. It's not good with human faces,
2: right? I think in one year from now, that will be, yeah, it will be way better at that. And then in five years from now, it will be able to perfectly create anything you can tell it to do.
4: I, I mean, but that's just it. So, right now, where it is, like, a lot of these technologies is it what it will do for artists is it will allow them to produce more work faster, right? You know, cause it'll do a lot of the heavy lifting. Like if you have a city background you need or something that's like very time consuming and it could produce that for you. And then you could paint on top of that or you can do things with it. It's an augmentation. Yeah. I,
2: I tend to agree. I mean, I think it's like Photoshop. I mean, in the sense that there are things Photoshop does for artists as an example, or garage band mm-hmm. for you, for instance, you clearly have an artistic sensibility about the music you want to make, but there are parts of it you can't do on your own. Right. I mean, this, totally. and so, so garage is there to kind of fill in some creative gaps or some experience gaps for you. I mean, I think I agree with the AI stuff, but I think it's also scary just because we're not used to seeing creative output from a machine. Like, yes, you tell it, I want a mountain in CGI, like it will make a mountain. And you go, all right, well, it kind of randomized the surfaces of that mountain. So that sort of makes sense to me. This is like much more specific kind of creativity. And I think that's where it kind of freaks people out. Yeah. It feels like it's creating something on purpose.
4: Oh, utterly. It doesn't now take a huge leap to imagine. No, this thing is sentient. And (laughs) you know that's like a slippery word, but it's not just like, you know, a random machine that's putting things together, it's going to have an opinion, right? Like it's going to have a perspective. Now that might not be a human perspective, or it might be just a kind of synthetic imitation of a human perspective, but it's going to have a perspective. It's going to be something that you sort of have to negotiate with. It's not going to just be a paint by numbers machine. Yeah. And so I, I think that's where it gets unsettling. It's like, Oh, okay. And that's where I start to go. Well, Yes, at some point, you're not going to need the director anymore because you're going to say Alfred Hitchcock meets um, Jacques Tati style with James Cameron's lighting or something. Like, <laughs> right. And then it will
2: – It will make a movie for you.
4: <laughs> yes. So here's the unsettling part. You begin to realize, oh, I'm just cobbling from things that exist. <laughs> right? Right. See, how original am I? Like, that starts to... Well, you're just a
2: a very advanced AI, basically.
4: Right. Well, we like to think that we're more than that, right? That we have souls, that we are expressing something that is entirely unique to us, but especially in the film world. (laughs) I don't want to speak about other artists. You know, film is so technical, and it's such a... It is a, a medium that needs to speak to many, many, many people. And so, I think a lot of filmmakers, not saying all of them, but a lot of filmmakers are really taking what they've absorbed from other filmmakers and then putting the, through the filter of who they are and expressing that. Yeah. And when you start to realize that's what the AI is (laughs) like, (laughs) there's really, maybe there's not so much difference between. Well,
2: I think there may still be some use for humans. I have not even gotten to the peripheral, which I want to talk about. You're a producer. You directed the, what, the first two episodes of the show.
4: Is that right? I directed episodes one, two, and five and six. And I have a wonderful directing partner, Alok Riley, who did the uh, the other ones.
2: So this is your, I mean, this is kind of your baby. And it is based on a William Gibson book. I will admit, I've only watched the first episode and I haven't read the book. And I am a lifelong William Gibson fan. And I have, there are a few books of the, of the last, you know, I don't know, decade or so that I have, I have missed. And I was like, fuck, I, should I read the book first and then watch it? And then the trailer was so compelling. I'm like, I'm just going to watch it. I'm just going to bite the bullet. And it's dealing with sort of this concept of obviously with virtual reality, like a much more advanced virtual reality. There's a really interesting undercurrent about healthcare in the country, uh, where like a pill costs like a thousand dollars or something. And it's also kind of like exploring this sort of this like alternate reality or like metaverse reality. That you know, I mean, the metaverse. I don't know how much like faith or stock we put in the concept now, but do you feel like this is reflective of this moment? Is this a mirror to the world as it is now or is this total fantasy?
4: Oh no, it's not total fantasy. I mean the book was written in 2014 and then in typical Gibson fashion the world has kind of grown into the book. Right. You know it was pre-Trump like when he wrote this thing and but he was basically writing about America that was had walked a little further down the Trump road because there's a near future southeastern united states location that kind of is that's where we made our our primary character Fisher. And there is a concept in the book and it's kind of a spoiler for the series, but because we're talking about- Wait,
2: don't spoil it. Wait.
4: Okay. I won't say anything, but that is not the chilling part of the story. Okay. Okay. Good. The chilling part of the story is something else. Like we've known about this for a long time. You could see it coming, but the way he articulates it, I am positive is the most correct and plausible depiction of what is in our near future. And it is utterly terrifying. (laughs) God. As the years have gone by, it has been borne out, you know, the subsequent whatever it is, eight years since the book was published. So I don't think you can watch it without getting a little bit like queasy because you're like, uh, is this going to happen? Yeah. And on some level, if you read the book, what it is, is a satire.
2: There was at some point a few years ago, a story that you were working on a film version of Neuromancer. Are you still working on that? Is that a real thing? Is there, you're not working on it. Can you talk about that at all or no?
4: Oh, I can talk about my version of Neuromancer. Yeah, no, that was my introduction to getting to know Mr. Gibson, who Mm. is one of the great, not only one of the great novelists, but one of the great people I've met in my life. Um, He's just a lovely, lovely human being. And of course, brilliant. Um, And I had the good fortune of getting my greedy, grubby little fingers on Neuromancer, and writing a screenplay based on the book, which I, to be perfectly honest, feel like it's one of the best things I had written, which of course is because the book's so good. <laughs> but um, but I really felt like I cracked the book. Uh, and, you know, creatively on every level, all the stuff that was done was just great. But the problem was, it's like a 60 to $100 million cyberpunk film, and I'm not James Cameron.
2: Wait, does that mean that you can't direct it or... People don't want to give you the money. <laughs> like, what, what is the...
4: At that time, now we're talking 12 years ago. Yeah. You know, I had some heavy-hitting producers who attached themselves to it, and they just couldn't convince the studios for various reasons. Warner Brothers said, it's too much like The Matrix. Of course, The Matrix lifted <laughs> like, great gee, swaths I wonder, of, I wonder why. <laughs> right. But I always felt like, yes, that's true. Ma- the Matrix took a lot from the romance, including the word, The Matrix. But... Yeah the heart of the book is very different. And it was dealing, actually it was dealing with artificial intelligence yeah. that I felt hadn't been explored at that time.
2: I think it's so funny that they would say that. To me, it's like, that part of it is such a, uh, not a, an important component in many ways. Like the, the matrix in Neuromancer is so not the story, you know? Like it is the story about humanity and those people. And like, you know, it's kind of also a heist. It's like a heist book, which it's is- It's a heist movie. No, no, that's you, you, you nailed it. The most thrilling bit is the heist, which is like such an unbelievable sequence of events. And like, yeah, like that feels like it should be a film or or something, you know, like. I know.
4: With Neuromancer, I I sincerely hope someone makes Neuromancer from the bottom of my heart. But if someone offered it to me right now, I'm not sure I would take it because that was written 40 years ago. Yeah. Whereas the peripheral to me, for me, is much more exciting because it is so much about this time. It is speaking directly to this kind of precipitous moment that we are standing on, you know, where I just feel like we're on a razor's edge and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I don't think Neuromancer, for all of its greatness, is, is about that because it was written
2: a long time ago. It is increasingly, and I mean, this has been on my mind a lot lately, that the things to really be freaked out by are no longer like these very abstract you know far away fears they're like things that are just around the corner and 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 you can draw a pretty clear line from like this moment in time to something like that happening and yeah i mean i get it working in a space that's so much more topical or feels so much more connected to this moment makes sense though i do think based on what i've seen of your work i feel like you would do a pretty kick-ass job with Neuromancer. This has been such an amazing conversation. Vincenzo, thank you so much. Like, really enjoyed this. Like, we touched on so many things that I'm so interested in. There was some insight, there was some surprise, there were some unexpected moments. So thank you so much for doing this. You got to come back and, and, you know, maybe when you're finally doing Neuromancer, you can come back and we can talk about that.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Josh. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. It's
0: a stimulating conversation. Thank you.
2: And that is Vincenzo Natale's music that you're listening to right now from his album that he produced on his big iPad and uh, I have to say it's pretty good yeah I actually and I and I'm not saying this just because like he's a, a great guest and a nice guy. I actually, when I heard this, I was like, what is this? This is really good. Mm-hmm. And it, and so, you know, yet another example of technology helping and healing, I would say. Not in that order.
3: I have become addicted to mid-journey.
2: Uh, that sounds unhealthy.
3: Well, you know what I mean. I'm saying. No addiction is good. I love mid-journey. I made so many images that I ran through my free trial. And I want to keep going.
2: <laughs> Did you subscribe?
3: I haven't yet. I mean, this happened last night, but I just think it's so interesting that he's been using it. Yeah. You've been using it. I've joined the subreddit. Oh,
2: wow. <laughs> you're getting deep on it. And, well, they also just released a new version. Actually, the day that we, I think, put out our, our show with um, David, the CEO, there's a new version of it that's even better. And it really is unbelievably good at, at creating like very, very almost photorealistic or photorealistic images uh, amongst other things. Yeah. I honestly think it's so fascinating that Vincenzo feels so weirdly sort of, I don't know, he's like optimistic about
3: mm-hmm.
2: the fact that it could replace him in a way or not optimistic, but sort of accepting. Yeah. I do feel like there's a limit to its power. Right now, its applications are pretty straightforward. I mean, it's for me, not having to create beautiful artwork for our show every week. Although I suppose I could, I mean, I suppose I could be doing new artwork every week. I haven't returned to it that much though. The other day, Zelda was like, can we play with the thing that made George Washington dancing with like Elsa from frozen or whatever? And so, you know, it could be the next generation is going to really pick it up. But I think that it is kind of addictive in the sense that once you start doing it and you realize you can almost put anything into it and you have no idea what you're going to get, but every result is in some way interesting. It, it is a little bit like a dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. You know, as we distance ourselves from social networks, maybe the next like addictive behavior is just creation. And maybe that's an amazing new and better place for us to get to. Maybe everybody's going to become addicted to creating things. I hope you're right. Well, look, I think that's a great place to end it on a high note, on a positive, hopeful note. That is our show for this week. We'll be back next week with more What Future. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best.
1: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.